Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Father, thank you that your son is the one that the world has been waiting for. He has come and he has done all the things that you promised he would do. He has set us free from our sins if we believe. So God, I pray today that you would help me to glorify your son and help us to glory in your son and to believe on your son and to walk out of this place today excited to proclaim your son to those who are looking for someone and don't yet know who he is. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last June 22nd, an Englishman named Ian Usher decided that he was going to sell his entire life on eBay. Some of you may have seen this on the news or uh, on the internet. On eBay, I'm going to sell my whole life, he said. And here's how he advertised it. Everything. Lifestyle, house, car, motorbike, job, friends, Everything that I own and all the things that I don't own that are still an important part of my life. For further details on where I live, the life I lead, all my possessions, a photo tour of the house and everything in it, as well as more information on friends, job, and much, much more, go to the additional info section on my website. When I say everything is included in the sale, I mean everything is included. Upon completion and settlement, I will walk out of my home for the last time in just the clothes I am wearing and carrying only my wallet and passport. My current thoughts are to then head to the airport and ask the flight desk where the next flight with an available seat goes to and to get on that and see where life takes me from there. That last statement lets you know that apparently Mr. Usher's bank account was not a part of the all things in the package that you were buying from him. But he was auctioning off really nearly everything else in his life. The package even included, with his employer's permission, approval for a several-week trial at his job. And the package included, with his friend's approval, access to Mr. Usher's electronic contacts list and promise from those friends that they would at least call him back and get together with him the first time around. Again, in the words of Mr. Usher, when I say that everything is included in the sale, I mean everything. I read that story last summer, and I thought to myself, to put it mildly, what a unique fellow. What an interesting, what a strange person, perhaps a bizarre person. Someone would have to have a very strong impetus to literally walk away from everything in their life and sell it to another person. 
And I thought, what must be going on in someone's heart that would be willing to do that, that would want to do that? And then the thought occurred to me, as I considered the story even further, the person who would actually take Mr. Usher up on his offer would probably even be more strange and more bizarre. Because who would ever want to walk away from everything? But even more than that, who would want wholesale to take on another person's whole persona? Someone else's house, maybe. Their possessions, perhaps. Maybe even their job. All of us are covetous, aren't we? But to take over someone else's friends and his clothes and the food in his refrigerator and everything about him? Doesn't everyone like to have a little something that's just me? So I said to myself, the person who would actually completely take on the life of another human being, becoming like them in every respect, would have to have some even stronger desire than the person who is simply walking away from it all. It's just so far-fetched and unbelievable, but it actually happened on June 29th of that year. Someone bought Mr. Usher's life and presumably is living it today. Strange. And then this thought occurred to me. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did for us? Didn't Jesus take on everything about us sinful human beings except our sin? Didn't he take on our lifestyle? Didn't he come to the earth and work as a carpenter and need daily rest and deal with all the unsettling things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis? He who had fellowshiped in eternity with the Father and with the Spirit and with the angels of heaven came to earth and made human friends, the same kind of friends that we have. He who is the bread of life came and hungered like we do. He who is the great physician came and ate like we do. He who is the wonderful counselor wept like we do. He who is wisdom itself went to school like we do. And as we saw last week in the first 13 verses of this chapter, he who was without sin was tempted in all things, just like we are. Jesus came to earth and took on our lives wholesale, except for sin. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus really did become a full-fledged human being, just like you. And Luke, the author of this gospel, is keen to remind us of this fact all throughout this biography of Jesus. In fact, of all the gospel writers, it is Luke, for instance, who is most often shining the spotlight on the physicality of Jesus. Luke spends a great deal of time in this book talking about Jesus' hunger and his pain and his weariness and his sweat and his blood and so on. And it's also, Luke, among all the gospel writers whom we see several times here in these early chapters taking a keen interest in Jesus' need for the help of the Holy Spirit. You may remember from last week in chapter 4, verse 1, that Luke clued us in on the fact that when Jesus came and resisted the devil's temptation, he was not doing that simply in the strength of his own deity, but he was doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Having taken on flesh, Jesus laid aside certain of his divine prerogatives temporarily. And one of those prerogatives that he laid aside temporarily, apparently, was immunity to temptation. God can't be tempted. 
nor does he tempt anyone with evil. But Jesus was tempted, and so when he became a man, he laid aside that immunity that he had had forever to temptation. And thus, just like us, Luke 4, 1, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit to overcome sin and temptation. And we see Luke emphasizing the same kind of thing here in these verses, do we not? Jesus resisted temptation in the power of the Spirit, and today Jesus also performs his ministry in the power, verse 14, of the Spirit. That's not just thrown in for a few extra words. This is not uh, someone writing in Victorian times where they get paid for the amount of words that they write. No, Luke includes that phrase, in the power of the Spirit, on purpose. He's telling us when Jesus came and did his ministry, and this is the beginning of his ministry here in Luke 4, he didn't do so only in his own strength. But he voluntarily needed the Spirit's help. And we see the same thing in verse 18, don't we? Jesus doesn't just say, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor and to deliver the captives and so on. He says... The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do these things. In other words, though Jesus was and is very God of very God, Luke is reminding us again this morning that Jesus, in becoming like us in every way except sin, voluntarily made himself dependent on the Holy Spirit's help and power and support and anointing and blessing. He voluntarily made himself to need the Holy Spirit's help. Luke 4.14 and Luke 4.18 are reminders that Jesus didn't come teaching and healing and helping and saving merely in his own power. Now be careful. That is not to say that Jesus had or has no power to do these things. Of course he does. He's God. But... For those 33 years on earth, having laid aside some of his divine privileges, Jesus voluntarily needed the Holy Spirit's help. He needed to go to the Holy Spirit and say, help me, fill me, use me, anoint me, just like you do. Just like you do. And Jesus prevailed with the Holy Spirit's help, just like you can, when you call out to him for his leading and for his assistance. And not only did Jesus need the Holy Spirit, but we saw last week and we see again today that he also needed his Bible. He needed his Bible. Now we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning actually examining what Jesus taught from the Bible there in verses 18 and 19. But before we do that, I think it's important just to notice the circumstances of this event itself. We should ask ourselves, why was Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth in, the, in, Nazareth in the first place that day? Why was he there? Well, the obvious answer is that Jesus was in the synagogue that day because he had chosen that day and that place to announce his messianic ministry and his program for the world. That's the main reason. But there's another reason why Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. And we find it tucked away in verse 16. You may not have even noticed it when we read through the first time. But Luke tells us in verse 16 that one reason why Jesus was in the synagogue that Sabbath day is because Jesus was in the synagogue every Sabbath day. As was his custom, he entered the synagogue. Well, that may seem insignificant. Well, of course it was his custom. That's just what people do that love God. They go to the worship service every week. Now, some of us may think that's not remarkable unless we actually sit down and maybe compare Jesus' habits to our own. But the comparison becomes even more striking when we realize that not only was Jesus in the synagogue 
every Sabbath day, hearing the word of God. But when we realize that if there was ever anybody who didn't need to go to the weekly worship service in order to draw near to God, it was Jesus, right? There was ever anyone who didn't need to be in the house of God to draw near to God. It was Jesus. Of course, Jesus is God. Everywhere he goes, he's near to God. He can't not be near to God. And yet somehow in his humanity, Jesus put himself in a position where he needed to be in the synagogue. He needed to be hearing the word of God, both as it was read and as it was taught every week. And it was his custom. He emptied himself in such a way that he needed the word of God, just like you. And we get another glimpse of that, Jesus' dependence on the word of God, when he stands up actually to read it in verses 16 and 17. Luke tells us that Jesus, quote, opened the book and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The guy handed in the book, he opened the book or the scroll probably and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And again, we may read that and pass over that sentence all too quickly. But I want you to notice that Luke doesn't say that Jesus turned to Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 and read the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He says he turned to the place. Why does he say that instead of just telling us the place? Well, because when Luke wrote and when Jesus read that day in the synagogue, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers weren't in the Bible like we have them today. See, we don't know our Bibles as well as Jesus did, so we have to put chapters and verses in there so we can find Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But Jesus didn't need all that. Jesus knew exactly where these verses were. It was no small feat for him to take this scroll that contained the whole book of Isaiah and open it up and without having to fumble around in front of the whole congregation say, here, let me tell you exactly where I want to go. Here it is. And turn exactly to the passage he was looking for. That was no small feat. How many of you this morning, as you sat in Sunday school, if the teacher had said to you, um, would you please come to the front and read us that passage about Jesus being anointed to preach the gospel to the poor? How many of you could have stood up confidently, walked to the front of the classroom and said, give me that Bible. Here it is. Probably not many of us. I mean, we even have the numbers. Jesus didn't have the numbers, and he knew exactly where this passage was. Now, some would say, well, that's because he's God and he wrote it, and so of course he knew where it was. And maybe that's true, but given what we've seen about Jesus emptying himself and needing the Holy Spirit and needing to quote the verses of the Bible to the devil and to himself under temptation last week and needing to be in the synagogue every week to hear God's word, it would seem to me that the reason why Jesus knew exactly where these verses were and turned right to them was not simply because he was God, but because he had spent his human life studying the scriptures. Now, I share that with you not to scold you, to say, well, could you find Isaiah 61 if there were no numbers there? That's not why I share that. I share it with you not to scold you, but to show you something about Jesus. Namely, that these verses hint at the fact that Jesus must have spent copious amounts of time in God's word, knowing exactly where to find what he was looking for. He had studied God's word so thoroughly and probably without having owned a copy himself in these pre-printing press days, he had studied the word of God so thoroughly that he could just turn right to the passage with no helps. But why did he study that way? Why was he so familiar with the Bible? Why did he make himself so familiar with the written word of God? 
Was it because he wanted to be able to stand up in his hometown one day and in front of all of his friends and the ladies that had helped him as a little boy when he grew up and show off? Show how smart he was? Of course not. Why did Jesus know the Bible so well? Presumably, he spent such large amounts of time in the Bible because having emptied himself and being, having been made in the likeness of men, having laid aside certain of his divine privileges, he voluntarily needed daily bread, just like you do, just like I do. It's a remarkable thing to me to think that Jesus, as a human, voluntarily, not because he was needy in and of himself, but because he voluntarily wanted to become like us, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived on this earth for 33 years and had to open his Bible every day and read it and study it and learn to rely upon it, just like you. And he both overcame sin and temptation. And here today, he fulfilled God's plan for his life by relying on the Holy Spirit and relying on the scriptures just like you may do. Just like you. That's a constant theme in these early chapters of Luke. From Jesus' incarnation to his childhood to his temptation, now to his constant reliance upon the word of God and the spirit. Jesus took on everything that you and I are except sin. To quote our friend Mr. Usher, lifestyle, house, job, friends, everything you own and all the things that you don't, but there's still in your life except sin. And as I said before, anyone who would do that Anyone who would lay aside their own life and take on the life of another must have a very strong motivation for doing so. We don't know why someone would do it in modern times, but we do know why Jesus would lay aside his own life and take on the life of another. He did so living just like we do so that he could die just like we do. He came and lived just like we do so that he might die, in fact, in our place. Jesus, so that he might save us, became one of us. Jesus, Luke is keen to remind us, was and is fully human, just like you. But as we read on in verses 14 through 21, we also discover that Jesus was at the same time more than human. And that's the main point, really, of this passage. Think about it. It's not every day that someone can stand up in the worship service, read a portion of the Bible, any portion of the Bible, whatever it is, and say what Jesus says in verse 21. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't think you've ever heard me stand up and say that to you or probably anyone else stand up and say that to you. But Jesus can because everything that's written in this book is about him. He could read any passage in the Bible and say, this is about me. It's amazing. It's not every day that someone could stand up and say, yeah, you know those Old Testament promises, all those things Isaiah said about God's servant and the Savior for God's people? That's me. Of course not. So Jesus is fully human just like you, but he's not merely human, is he? He's not a mere man. We should gain comfort and hope from his humanity and from the ways that he condescended to us and became like us and took on weakness like us and was tempted like us. Because we... If Jesus was human and was tempted like us and through the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit overcame sin and temptation, so can we. And if Jesus was just like us, human, 
and needed the spirit and needed the word of God and therefore fulfilled his ministry, so can we. But we can't do everything that Jesus did, can we? Not at all. We can't save people. We can't come and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord as he does here. Those are prerogatives of Jesus alone. And so we find ourselves really in the book of Luke, alternately standing beside Jesus, imagining his arm around us, having become one of us, and saying to ourselves, if he can resist the devil and the power of the Spirit, so can I. If he can fulfill ministry in the power of the Spirit, so can I. But then we also find ourselves on the ground in the book of Luke at Jesus' feet, saying, thank you, Jesus, that you can and have done for me what I could never do. Thank you, Jesus, that you, unlike me, can open blind eyes, that you, unlike me, can release the captives and set free the oppressed. Thank you, Jesus, that you can set me free. It's a strange paradox in the book of Luke. It's a strange paradox in the purpose of Christ. Very God of God, and yet human, just like us. But we see here that this Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, did come to open blind eyes and to release the captives and to set free the oppressed. That's what Luke says, and that's what Jesus says in verse 18. Read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean? What exactly did the Spirit anoint him to do? And what does that mean for us today? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to spend the rest of our time this morning answering. And as we try to answer those questions, what exactly was Jesus coming to do? What did the Spirit anoint him to do? And what does that mean for us? We're going to see that the answers to those questions uh, have a couple of different layers to them. There are a couple of different kinds of answers. First of all, in the healing and exercising and social ministry that Jesus would engage in over the next three years, beginning in Luke 4, there were some very immediate, very physical fulfillments to the prophecies that Isaiah made and that Jesus repeats here, weren't there? Jesus literally opened blind eyes. Jesus literally set free oppressed people, demonically oppressed people. And we're going to take note of those fulfillments and ask what they mean for us as followers of Jesus in 2009. But we also need to see that there's another layer to these prophecies. Good news for the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. All those things while bringing great joy to physically impoverished, physically downtrodden people actually have something to say to us all. Something more far-reaching, And something more momentous even than healing and physical freedom that we see Jesus providing so often in the book of Luke. In other words, Jesus is also reminding us here, for instance, that he proclaims release not only to those who are demon-possessed, but he proclaims release to all of us who lay captive in our sins. So, again, when Jesus repeats these prophecies first made by Isaiah and applies them to himself. He's repeating them and applying them with a double meaning. He came to give sight both to those who are physically blind and to those who have been blinded, all of us, by our sin. 
And both kinds of ministry, the physical and the spiritual, are vitally important if we're going to understand the life and work of Jesus as we should. So we need to take a look at Jesus' life and work under the rubric of these various ministries that are presented to us here in verse 18. We need to look at all four of these categories and see what exactly Jesus came to do and what it means for us. And so we're going to look, first of all, at their immediate fulfillment in the physical lives of impoverished and hurting people in Judea and Galilee in the first century. What did Jesus come to do? Well, he says, first of all, that the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the poor. That's a significant statement. Jesus is reminding us here that he did not come to hang out merely in the suburbs. He did not come to rub shoulders only with the religious and well-to-do people. He didn't shy away from people like Zacchaeus or Nicodemus either, but that's not simply why he came. He also came to spend large amounts of time with the outcasts of society and with the average Joes who lived in Galilee and Judea, the fishermen, the shepherds, the crowds on the hillsides and the crowds at the seashores. Those are the people also that Jesus came to be with, the poor. And as a matter of fact, as you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is constantly urging his followers to give to those people, not to make trouble for those people and not to look down their noses at those people. Jesus loves the poor. He had a special ministry to the physically poor. And that means that for us, we're not following Jesus very closely if we only ever spend time with people in our own social strata. It means for us, if we recoil from that homeless man who's standing on the street corner downtown, that we're not following Jesus as closely as we think. It means for us, if we aren't making a serious effort in some way to help and to alleviate the pain and the poverty of the masses, particularly in the third world where poverty still exists in biblical proportions, if we don't care about those things and don't make efforts in those areas, we're not following Jesus as closely as we ought. Now, having said that, I realize that much of what is called poverty in our country is actually great riches when we are compared with the rest of the world. And I realize, too, that sometimes government programs seem to encourage subsidy rather than ingenuity. And I realize that many people who think of themselves as poor in our country may actually better be described with another four-letter word, namely L-A-Z-Y. I understand all of that. But I also understand how easy it is for me to use those things as excuses for having a hard heart, an unchristlike heart, toward the people who really do need a helping hand. It's easy to say, well, we never know if someone's just going to go use the money for drunkenness and so I shouldn't help anyone. That's an excuse that Christ never made and doesn't allow us to make. Maybe you use those excuses just like me. And if so, Luke 4.18 can serve as a check in your heart. Do you love the people that Jesus loved? Do you serve the people that Jesus served? If you're a follower of Jesus, then ministries like the City Gospel Mission, or Compassion International, or Abba's Living Water, or World Vision, or Samaritan's Purse, ought to have a place in your heart and in your budget. Jesus says also, I came to proclaim release to the captives. To the captives. What captives? 
When we think of captives, we immediately think of people who have been locked up somewhere. But when we read the book of Luke and the Gospels, we don't find that Jesus went to the local prisons and went on a campaign to set people free from their sentences. That's not what he means here by captive. So what does he mean? Well, as we read in the book of Luke, what we find, what we're going to find, is that there were a number of people in Jesus' day who were bound, who were captive by spiritual forces, people who were possessed by demons. And as we read the book of Luke, we find that Jesus has a particular interest in setting free, in releasing those captive people. What does that mean for us? There are all sorts of directions we could go here, but let me just say this. At the very least, Jesus' deliverance of these demonically captive people means for us that we need at least to be well aware of the spirit world and to be well aware of the people around us today who are possessed by satanic forces and who need not to be locked behind the iron doors of a government institution, but who need to be prayed for and loved and cared for and told of Jesus. I wonder if anyone in this room is willing to take a real interest in these kinds of people. Maybe it's someone in your family, someone that you know personally, to whom you need to reach out. Maybe it's that perplexed, bizarre man in your neighborhood, and you need to get to know him. Maybe it's the guy who stands right down here in Pleasant Ridge on the corner, twitching and shouting at the top of his lungs, yelling at no one in particular. And maybe I need to someday stop and just try to talk to that man about Jesus. Or maybe someone in this room is being called to get in the system itself, to get behind those iron doors and to speak peace to those people, to proclaim release to the captives. We need to love the kinds of people that Jesus Loved. Thirdly, Jesus says that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to give, to offer recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. And again, as we read on in the pages of Luke's Gospel, we'll see Jesus do this quite literally on a number of occasions. And not only did he heal the blind, but he also healed the lame and the deaf and the deformed, and a woman who was bent double, and another woman who had had serious gynecological problems for 12 years. All of these people Jesus cared for and healed. And he relayed a message in Luke chapter 7 to John the Baptist, saying in essence this, John, do you see what God is doing? Do you see what God is doing? I really am the fulfillment of the promises. I really am the great physician. I really am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. One of the signs was that he would heal These people who couldn't be healed by normal means. And let me ask you if you still believe today that he can do these things. Do you really? If so, then you will pray with great faith. God hasn't promised that all all of us have the power to lay our hands on people and heal people. Certainly not. But if you believe that Jesus can heal people, then you will pray with great faith. Not demanding that he heal, but knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that he can and that he loves to do so. If you believe that Jesus is the great physician, in fact, you will take seriously what he tells us in his word in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what he says. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Is anyone among you sick? This is what he should do. Do you really believe that? 
Or is it easier to just say to yourself, oh, I know God can heal. And if God wants to heal me, he'll heal me. But there's no need to trouble the elders. And there's certainly no need to go out and buy any oil. Someone might think I'm a lunatic. Someone might think I'm a charismatic. They might think I'm crazy if I actually do what James says to do. No, no, no. I'll just pray by myself. And God will do what God will do. Well, you should pray by yourself. But you should realize that Jesus can and does heal the sick. Not every time we want, but every time it's right. And you might need to realize that sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. James chapter 4. Or maybe we do not have because we do not ask in the very specific way that God has told us to. Now finally, Jesus says there in verse 18 that he's come to set free those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed. Some of his contemporaries no doubt took this to mean that the Messiah was going to come and lead the people of Israel in a rebellion and overthrow the oppressive powers of Rome. But again, clearly that's not what Jesus was about. He never did that. He never even hinted that he would do that. Rather, the oppressed that Jesus is seeking to set free are people, I believe, like the Samaritans. You remember the Samaritans? They lived kind of right in the middle of two sets of Jewish people in the north and the south. And so instead of cutting through Samaria, because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans so greatly, they would go all the way around this way. It would be like trying to get to Detroit and going through Chicago to get there. That's what they did because they didn't want to be around these people. And Jesus came and he said, these people are oppressed by my people and I'm going to set them free. I'm going to go into their land and I'm going to tell the gospel to them. And he did. And he set free other oppressed people like prostitutes who because of their own sin and because of the sins of others were being used and abused in order to make other people rich and happy. And he came and he set free in many ways women. Women were oppressed in those days. And while Jesus did nothing, not one thing to overturn the biblical teaching on the distinction between men and women in their roles, Jesus did recognize, unlike many of his contemporaries, that women had value to God, that women were souls who needed to be saved, and that women could serve the kingdom of God effectively in their God-given roles. So Jesus cared about the oppressed people in his day, and his followers ought to do the same. What does that mean? It means that Christians should have been on the forefront of the American civil rights movement when they weren't. They were on the forefront in some ways in the, in the abolition of slavery, but we dropped the ball in the 50s and 60s. And today we're dropping some balls. Christians need not give up the fight to protect the unborn and say, well, it's a lost cause and we'll just try to reduce the numbers. No, Christians ought to fight for these oppressed unborn children. Christians ought to advocate for the handicapped. Christians ought to be actively involved in putting an end to the sex trafficking that humiliates and defiles and destroys countless Eastern European and Asian young girls and young women every year. And Christians ought most certainly to be providing for and praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ who are oppressed simply because they profess the name of Jesus. Jesus, by dint of the kinds of people he spent his time around, the kinds of people he set free, has given us a mandate to love and to care for and to defend and to set free those in our day who are oppressed. Now, everything that we've said thus far is true, 
I hope, and vital and helpful to you. But everything we've said thus far is not enough. Because if we stopped here, our reading of Luke chapter 4, verse 18, will have only been skin deep. And we will not have said anything that's really distinctly Christian. In fact, I would argue that our Jewish friends just to the north of here and our non-Bible believing church going friends just to the south of here would applaud almost everything that we've said thus far this morning. And well, they should. Because everyone can agree, at least in principle, that we ought to help the poor and minister to the sick and release the captives and set free the oppressed. Everyone can agree on that, at least verbally. But what would they say and what would you say if we began to proclaim that we, us normal, upstanding, middle class, tax paying Americans are just as poor and just as blind and just as captive as anyone that we've spoken about thus far this morning? Now that's a different message, isn't it? Now that's a different story, but it's a true story. When Jesus speaks about the poor, and the captives, and the blind, and the oppressed. He's talking not only about the people in his day, but he's talking about us. He's talking about our friends in those other religious buildings this weekend. Not physically or socially necessarily, mind you. For many of us are just as well off. We're just as well adjusted in these regards as the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. We've got everything under control, we think. But Jesus says in Revelation 3:17, doesn't he, that sin has made us wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Us, upstanding American people. And that kind of poverty and oppression is far more serious than any of the social ills that you could go and observe in Over the Rhine this afternoon. Far more serious. Because material poverty is only skin deep. And physical captivity and social oppression, as evil as they are, only last a lifetime. And physical blindness doesn't follow us beyond the grave. But the blindness and the poverty and the captivity of sin do follow us beyond the grave and they result in an eternity of conscious torment in hell. This spiritual blindness and weakness and captivity and oppression are far more serious than anything we've spoken about so far. So when we read that Jesus has come to heal the blind and free the oppressed and rescue the poor, while there are social implications to be applied, and I hope you apply them and apply them with zeal, they aren't the only implications and they aren't even the main implications of this passage. The main implications of this passage are spiritual ones. How do I know that? Just notice a few things with me. Did you listen carefully to what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 18? What does he come to do primarily for the poor? Give them food and clothes? No. Help them with their rent? No. Now he did those things, and so should we. But that is not what he says is primary in verse 18, isn't it? If that's where we stop with just helping the poor, we've misunderstood the message and the mission of Jesus. For he came first and foremost to preach the gospel to the poor. The gospel. The good news that he himself was going to a Roman cross, bearing the guilt of their sin, dying the death sentence that they and we deserve, rising on the third day and ever living to intercede for us. 
That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to bring to the poor, mainly. The good news that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he brought to the poor. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, not necessarily from poverty on earth, but from punishment in hell. Jesus came, first and foremost, not to provide food, but to preach faith. Not to give rations, but to grant repentance. And if this is what he came to do for the poor, then that's the rubric under which we should interpret the rest of these verses. In other words, the release that Jesus proclaims to the captives is not primarily a release from temporary satanic oppression, but a release from permanent destruction in the devil's hell. Those are the strongest bonds that hold us in captivity, aren't they? Not the chains that hold us to a wall, not demonic oppression for a season, but the chains that hold us in our sin and eventually drag us down into hell. That's the greatest captivity. Similarly, the sight that Jesus wants to provide for the blind is not merely available to those who are physically blind, but to people who always seem to be hearing and seeing the things of God, but never able quite to understand them, as Jesus says in Mark 13. Some of you know people like that. You explain the gospel to them, and they just, it doesn't go through. They don't get it. They don't see that they need to turn to Christ, no matter how hard you try to explain it. And unless they're born again, John 3, 3, unless Jesus opens their blind eyes, they cannot even see, much less enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the blind eyes that Jesus is most concerned about. And in the same way, the freedom that Jesus wants to provide is not mainly a freedom from how others oppress us and keep us down, but it is a freedom from the bondage that our own wicked desires and sinful lusts hold us in. That's why when we read Isaiah 61, which we read this morning and from which Jesus quotes here in Luke 4, we keep hearing the prophet using the word righteousness and using it to describe the results of the Messiah's ministry. If you turn to Isaiah 61 or just write it in your notes, you see three times in verse 3, verse 10, and verse 11, he tells us that the result of the Messiah's ministry, this recovery of sight, this freedom for the oppressed, this Gospel for the poor, the result of all that is righteousness. The good news, the recovery of sight, the freedom that Jesus came to give was meant to produce not the American dream, not a fair market economy, not human rights mainly. Those are byproducts. But the good news, the recovery of sight, the freedom that Jesus came to give mainly was and is meant to produce righteousness. Changed lives, saved souls that results in everlasting praise to God. So don't go to the city gospel mission just to serve food. If you go just to serve food, you've missed out on what Jesus says in verse 18. Don't just hand that beggar a dollar and be done with it. Tell him about Jesus. Don't think that giving to charity is the essence of New Testament love and faithfulness. No, not at all. Preach the gospel to the poor. Preach the gospel to the perplexed. Preach the gospel to the sick. Save the unborn, not just to save the unborn, but so that they have the opportunity and the privilege to hear the gospel. Unshackle the chains of the prostitute, both spiritually and physically. And mark this well. 
preach the gospel to your tax-paying, law-abiding, once-married, 40-hour-a-week working, nice, friendly, but godless neighbor. Because whether he looks like it or not, he is just as spiritually wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked as the prostitute. And so are you, apart from Jesus. And that brings me to my last exhortation. Preach the gospel to yourself. Are you spiritually poor? Have you come to the place where you realize that you in and of yourself have nothing good to offer to the Lord? We sang about it today, didn't we? Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. Have you come to that place of spiritual poverty? Do you feel like a spiritual beggar? You should. You should. It's true. It's true of me. And if you've come to that place, then you should run to Jesus with your hands held out and open for his charity. For he has good news for the poor. Are you held captive this morning by some sin habit? Is it for you that you just can't stop eating that food or smoking those cigarettes or looking at that stuff on the Internet or using those words or, con- or losing your temper, blowing up on people? Is it that you can't stop those things? You're captive to your sin? And don't just try harder. Hold out your wrists, your chain-shackled wrists to Jesus who has come to proclaim release to the captives. Is it that you're spiritually blind? There may be some in this room this morning and you're saying to yourself, I want to understand the Bible. I come here. I want to be saved. I want to have assurance of sins forgiven, but I just can't break through. I just can't understand this stuff. Well, it's not understanding the stuff. It's finding your way to Jesus who has come to give sight to the blind. If you would come to him, he would open your eyes to see. Or is it this morning, Christian, that you are spiritually oppressed? That you've lost the joy of your salvation? Maybe because of doubts. Maybe because of sins. Maybe it's just an overworked body. Or maybe it's an undernourished soul. But whatever it is, you've been left in a spiritual malaise and maybe an outright depression. And you're saying to yourself, I feel a great weight on my life. Then lift up your groans to Jesus who has come to set free those who are oppressed. Do you remember from the gospel stories how people responded when Jesus healed them, either physically or spiritually? Do you remember that some of them wept and some of them jumped off their mats and began leaping and praising God? Others of them threw parties for Jesus in their homes? Wonderful responses of joy that people have when they encounter Jesus. And you might have the same response today if you would surrender your doubts and confess your sins to the Savior. In fact, if you would hold out your empty, poor, sin-chained hands to Jesus, you would find that He would give you this very day, in the words of Isaiah, a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, and you would be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified.